Hey, listen, we have a we have a really fascinating show today. If you don't know Douglas Carswell, who is the uh, president and CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, uh, if you don't know him, you'll enjoy his story. We're, we're going to actually talk less about policy and more really about his story and how a guy from Parliament, from, from the U.K. Parliament, would find himself living in Mississippi. So without any further ado, let me bring uh, Douglas Carswell into the conversation. And first of all, just say good morning. How you doing, my friend? Morning, Ricky. Great to be here. It's good to see you. So uh, where are you sitting right now? I'm here in Jackson, downtown Jackson. Our office is located... Uh, a stone's throw from the state capitol. Well, I don't know who set up your little situation there for, for doing this. For people who are listening on the radio, what you what I see behind them is a Mississippi sign and some books, and it's kind of set up nicely. It's got a little brick wall behind them, and you, uh, you must do uh, interviews from time to time. That must be where you yeah. sit when you do it. We built this little studio in a spare room in our office, and um, you can probably tell we're, we're kind of inspired by some of, the, um, some of those other um, you know, YouTubers like uh, Ben Shapiro and co, we've, we've gone for a slightly sort of a, a brick wall feel behind me. For those of you who can't see, uh, a great prominent display of Mississippi um, features, though, a great big neon sign saying Mississippi. I'm particularly keen to have that on if I'm ever doing interviews with folk back across the Atlantic. I want them to know that I'm in Mississippi and that I'm very proud to be in Mississippi. So, well, yeah. Mississippi. So there's a lot of ground to cover, um, especially your time in Uganda, uh, you know, the Idi, Idi Amin uh, um, rule. Man, I remember that well. I remember the, the news well of those horrendous days and in and, and power. We'll talk specifically about that, how it impacted your, your, um, your literally your life, your father and the role that he played, particularly around AIDS. Um, it's really a fascinating story. And but before we get into all of that, and then of course how you ended up in how you ended up in Parliament, the role you had with Brexit, and uh, I mean, there's a lot there. Let's just tell people real quick about the Mississippi Center for Public Policy, so they can c kind of be grounded a little bit about what you're doing these days. Mississippi Center for Public Policy tries to make sure that politicians and policymakers keep taxes low regulations light and that they respect the founding principles of the United States Constitution. We, we are a think tank that believes that America is the greatest society on earth because of decisions that were made by the founders and that if we stay true to that, there's no challenge we can't overcome. So we, we advocate for changes to the law, for lower taxes. We're basically here in Jackson to try to make sure that your politicians, the people that you elect to represent you, uh, are honest with their taxes and don't interfere in your lives. Well, very interesting. Do you find it ever, do you ever collect your thoughts and the sort of the quietness of your own thoughts and say, I'm actually here involved in issues that are important to Mississippians and to America, given where you came from? Do you just find it kind of fascinating even to yourself? Do you know, there's literally not a morning that I haven't woken up and thought, oh my goodness, I am in America, I am in the United States, and felt really, really good about that. Even those days when, you know, the weather's terrible and you've got a whole bunch of problems at work or in your personal life, every morning that I've ever woken up in the United States, I've felt this great sense of joy at being here. I really do. You know, many of your listeners will have spent their entire lives in the United States, and we take for granted the things we're familiar with. 
But I think as an outsider, there is something just so exciting about coming here. I've lived in three different continents, six different countries, but this is the country that I feel, you know, when I came to America, I felt I'd in a weird way come home. This country really is just a a wonderful place to be. Um, and the fact that I've lived in other countries, other republics, somewhat less successful republics, um, you know, um, I think makes me appreciate the United States even more. The fact that I've lived in different countries and amongst different cultures, it, it makes me um, revere the United States all the more, because truly this is the greatest country on earth. You know, as a, as a former publisher and someone who has had the opportunity to travel outside the U.S., um, I, I enjoy talking to people who have a perspective, you know, people who it's, it's interesting because there are a lot of Mississippians who some Mississippians never left Mississippi. You know, they, they, they have, now I'm not saying that some are very educated. <clears throat> they just haven't had the opportunity. <clears throat> Certainly if they, they've traveled outside Mississippi, but not outside the country. When I talk to Mississippians who have had the opportunity to travel all over the world and I, and I, and I talk to them here on the show often it's to have a perspective to 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 go and get that perspective and then come back and to really sort of have a a firm footing around what we take for granted that is that's a that's almost a gift to to have that awareness isn't it what one of england's most famous poets a man called rudyard kipling once wrote a poem where he said what do they know of england who only england know and i think you could say the same about america what do people know of america if you only know america by learning a little bit about the world outside America, you actually learn more about America. You learn to appreciate America more. And I think by learning just a little bit more about other countries and other cultures, it, it makes you appreciate just what a remarkable achievement the United States is. And it's, I think it's very, very important that we, we learn about the rest of the world. Um, but I think in doing so, it, it, makes, it should make people uh, appreciate what it means to be an American all the more. You know, it comes in so many different forms. You know, it comes in, as you referred back to the Constitution. But let's—I like to bring it down to the ground in Mississippi. I mean, just just the ability to be able to get in your car and go somewhere. You know, and 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 travel across the United States. I I, I often I enjoy talking to people. I'm a I have a music background. I enjoy drumming. Uh, I love the blues and Mozart and Vivaldi and uh, you know, wide rank, Coldplay. I mean, I just have a, a, be a, a, a beautiful awareness of music, and I love music. But when you think about the Mississippi Delta, and all the way back to Robert Johnson through, you know, some some of the some of the more uh, contemporary blues artists, and the impact that the Mississippi blues scene, the, the impact that the Mississippi music scene has had mm -hmm. on the world. Mm -hmm. um, I had this wonderful conversation with Bill Luckett. Bill Luckett and Morgan Freeman started the, the Ground Zero Blues Club, and I had the opportunity to be actually the last long-form interview that Bill uh, gave before he unfortunately his untimely death. But he, he mentioned to me that at any point in Clarksdale there at the Ground uh, uh, Zero Blues Club, that over 50% of the people are not from America. You know, they would be from the UK or Australia or New Zealand or any 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 amazing place that this that the blue scene and particularly uh, Great Britain 
and the impact that the blues scene in Delta had on Great Britain. When you go and see that for yourself and begin to see the connection, you you really begin to see how small the world is, you know? So, yeah, you know, you could be sitting at Ronnie Scott's, a famous jazz club in London. You're basically listening to a sound that was created here in Mississippi. It's true. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, so interesting. So anyway, uh, perspective always makes a big difference. Um, listen, uh, you you grew up in a brutal time in Uganda's history. What, let's let's go back and 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 tell a bit of that story. And for for younger people who are listening to this show who don't know about Idi Amin and his rule, you can you'll have a, a gross appreciation for just how brutal this man was. Yeah, but I, you have a way. Go ahead. I grew up in a small republic um, in the middle of Africa, a country called Uganda. And um, rather like the United States, it was once run by the British, but then became independent. Um, its story wasn't um, nearly as successful as the story of the American Republic. Shortly after it became independent, it got taken over by a series of dictators, the most notorious of who was Idi Amin. And although I didn't appreciate it at the time because I was a kid growing up and I thought it was normal, the country literally disintegrated around us. I mean, you know, um, at one time it ran out of gasoline. You, you couldn't drive anywhere. My father, who was a surgeon, had to get on a bicycle and cycle to work. Doug, um, let's just let's do this. Let's pick it. I didn't realize we're t toward the end of this segment. When we get on the other side, we'll pick it up right there with Douglas Carswell, who is this president CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. We'll see you after this break. Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews Show. I have my new friend, Douglas Carswell, who is the president and CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. We're not necessarily going to talk about public policy today. We're just introducing Douglas to Coastal Mississippi audience and really through Super Talk TV for folks across Mississippi who have not had the opportunity to hear his story. When we went to break, we were just beginning to tell the story about uh, Uganda and how it influenced, living there influenced your life. So you can pick it up from there. Yeah, I, I don't know if you remember America's 200th birthday, um, July the 4th, um, 1976. That was actually my first ever memory was that date. And I remember it not because it was America's birthday, but because it happened to be the day of something called the Entebbe Raid. That was a, uh, a day when Israel flew some uh, paratroopers down to Uganda to rescue some hostages that some terrorists had, had taken. And it was a, a, a very famous, infamous global incident. The dictator of Uganda had offered shelter to the terrorists and the Israelis came along and, and, and rescued them. And that was probably my first ever memory. I, I remember um, adults around me intently listening to the radio and I remember crowds in the street, um, very uneasy. They, they thought that maybe it might be the end of the dictator, Idi Amin. But so, you know, growing up in Uganda was to me, um, you know, as as a child, it was it was my home. It was where I was from. Um, but I think it also gave me some very interesting assumptions about about life. I, I think I learned the importance of the, the free market. When you live in a country where the government tries to control absolutely everything and um, it tries to take control of uh, the farms and it tries to nationalize industry, uh, you get complete ruin. You You literally destroy what wealth there is in a society. So long before I even knew what the word economics meant, as a kid growing up, I understood government regulation bad, private enterprise good. And that's a lesson that stayed with me through life. Well, you to, to be clear, uh, so that we, we, we should have probably mentioned this, you were actually born in London 
And uh, so what, what age were you when you went there? And tell us more about your father and, and the influences he had and the work that he was doing in Uganda. Um, I think I was probably four or five weeks old when I first went to Uganda. My parents were living out there and they returned back to the UK, um, I think, at the time, because my mother had been born in India. I think there was a, a concern that I wouldn't automatically be entitled to a British passport. So that's that's why they made sure I was born in the UK. Um, but my, my family was established out there. Um, my father was a surgeon. My mother was a regular doctor. And um, they were, um, you know, uh, I, I think a quite remarkable. I know we all think our parents are, are great, but I think they were quite a remarkable couple. They, they went out there for what was supposed to be a two-year contract, um, and they found that their services as doctors in a newly independent country were very in demand, um, and they stayed. Um, they basically worked in a, a Catholic mission hospital for the best part of their careers. And, um, you know, my mother, who sadly died um, a, a year ago, um, you know, she was very well known for being someone who would always take patients. Often people had walked many, many miles um, for treatment. She would never turn anyone away. In fact, at, at various times during the various conflicts out there, she would treat opposing soldiers um, um, at, at the same time. She would always insist they, they had to leave their guns outside the hospital gates. But um, they, they provided a lot of health care to a lot of people who, who desperately needed it. And then, of course, in the early 80s, the AIDS epidemic struck. And my parents, both of them, were pretty instrumental in drawing the world's attention to that, that uh, pandemic. There's a lot of disbelief. People didn't understand it. People didn't want to understand it. Um, but they realized that was probably a, a, the number one health concern for the country. So they, yeah, they spent um, many years doing um, some very, very noble work in often very testing conditions. But um, don't get me wrong, um, it was a lovely place to grow up. I have very, very fond memories of Uganda. You know, the wonderful story in all of this is Uganda has since embraced the free market. And in the past 20 years, it has been growing at 4 or 5% a year. Uganda is an African success story today. If you go there, it is very prosperous, a huge middle class, very entrepreneurial. Um, it is a great success story. In fact, I often think that people in some parts of America could look at Uganda as an example of, of how a thriving entrepreneurial free market society could be. So, you know, it's interesting because uh, in doing during your work, I was or studying your background. I was drawn into uh, getting getting reminded about The Last King of, of Scotland, the movie. And who can for people who've seen that, because I remember well when it came out and just the impression that it, that, that it had on me, just, not just the movie itself, but Forrest Whitaker's uh, you know, playing of Idi Amin in that movie. And he, I think, he won a, an Academy Award for the for for best actor from from for for that part. But I've got to go back and watch the movie now. So tell us more about the relationship between Idi Amin and your father and and this movie. Well, I would be a little cautious. I mean, the Last King of Scotland is a work of fiction, and the uh, author of the book based his main character on on several different people. Um, but it's no coincidence that he had met my father, a Scottish surgeon, a Scottish doctor in Uganda. And um, of course, the protagonist in The Last King of Scotland is a Scottish doctor who comes to Uganda on a short-term contract. But a, a, lot of, a lot of that um, book is a work of fiction. I think what's really, the slightly sinister element in the film is based on a character called Bob Astles. And Bob Astles was, if you like, one of Idi Amin's sidekicks 
And um, I think the book kind of touches on on that relationship. Um, my father was a, a doctor who took very seriously this idea that you treat people no matter who they are, if they need healthcare. And that meant that sometimes as one of the few surgeons in the country, in fact, I think at one time he was the only surgeon in the country, he got he got sort of summoned to treat various members of the president's entourage. Um, he he treated everyone from the, you know, the, the, the president right down to, you know, the um, the, the regular the regular guy farming in the fields. He treated everyone. He 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 didn't discriminate. Um, he met Amin several times, um, and um, you know he met met several of the presidents of, of the country. It was a small country, and um, if you were a doctor, your services were in uh, uh, high demand. Um, so yeah, no, he um, he he took very seriously his role as a physician, um, and um, I think partly because of that no matter how turbulent things were around us, we were always pretty safe. Um, it, when, when times are tough, everyone's nice to doctors. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? Sounds like a guy who is incredibly committed to doing what was right. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you probably learned some incredible ethical and moral lessons from him, didn't you? I, I revere my parents. I mean, they gave me a, a, a great start in life. I mean, just the sheer toughness of them. You know, to raise a family in a country where things are falling apart, where inflation was running at, you know, currency became worthless. Um, you know, I remember one night at, uh, you know, in, in 79, 1979, um, my mother moving us to sleep in the cellar because because of the, the, the shelling. Um, uh, some invading army was shelling the capital. You know, just the, the sheer toughness of, of my, my parents um, and extraordinary resilience. Um, quite remarkable people. Um, nothing I achieve will ever, ever, ever be as as, as noble or as uh, a great as what they've achieved. And then this notion of the Ugandan Indians and how they found their way to Mississippi, and that, you know that actually gave rise to another another uh, uh, movie starring uh, Denzel Washington called Mississippi Marsala. But why don't you? I've heard of that, and I've always wanted to watch it because it's such a random coincidence that there's a movie about people who made the same journey that I've made. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I take my hats off to the uh, Ugandan Asian population. I mean, they were incredibly tough, too. They got expelled by Idi Amin. Some of them, of course, have gone back to Uganda, but some of them made their home here in Mississippi. And um, I gather that movie is an exploration about someone who made that journey. Um, mm hmm so 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 interesting, so interesting. So Uganda, when you experience something like that, it 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 changes your life. Uh, it it literally changed your life. I have a cousin whose daughter has uh, adopted two young men from Ukraine. And, um, and and one is from Western Ukraine, but one was from Eastern Ukraine, and she was able to, to get that adoption completed just before, you know, of course, it's been involved in t turmoil for an awful long time. But uh, to, and by the time they got over here, they were young teenagers, and 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 they watched their story and as they evolve as young men in, in America after what they've experienced in in Ukraine. Yeah. So it's amazing how it's going to it will shape them. It will be so interesting to watch their future as a result of that. I mean, I, I hope if someone comes from a background in a country like Uganda or Ukraine, I hope it does what it does to me, which is to make you an optimist. I, you know, every time I use my cell phone, I, I think it's a minor miracle because I remember growing up in a country where there were no telephones. Um, you know, the world is truly getting better. 
um, even Uganda is vastly better than it was. So I, I hope that if you come from a background like that, it makes you appreciative of America, but also uh, an optimist in life. The world really is getting better. I see, I see, I see what's interesting is I talk about it here a lot that some issues that involve difficult situations, often there's a lack of hope. You know, people don't feel hope. And so I, I, I say that, that to be in Mississippi, it's in spite of our challenges, we, we, there's a hopefulness about this place. And there is an opportunity for us to, I think one of the things that perspective gives you, uh, Douglas, is the opportunity to, to remind people that as tough as it can be, it can always be tougher, that there's always hope and opportunity. There are so many great things going on in Mississippi. I mean, look at what's happened along the coast over the past 10 or 15 years. I know you've been very instrumental in helping make that happen. Look at the growth happening in Hattiesburg and Laurel, that great TV show in Laurel. Look at the growth happening around our university towns of Starkville and Oxford, DeSoto County. There are great things happening in Mississippi. I, I'm, I'm kind of through with this doom and gloom thing. If you look at ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council's recent report, it says that Mississippi's economic prospects are now higher than they've been for years. Things are going well. Let's do this. We'll continue our conversation on the other side with Douglas Carswell from the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. We'll see you after this break. Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews Show. I have Douglas Carswell, who's the president and CEO of the Mississippi Center of Public Policy. And by the way, you know, you th you think about he's born in London for a reason. His parents were in Uganda. His parents were both uh, doctors. Uh, very difficult time in Uganda's history. The reality of Uganda today is it is it is it is a a country that represents hope and opportunity and has become sort of a best practice in Africa, as, as he was pointing out here just a few minutes ago. But he ends up moving, going back to the United Kingdom. He ends up becoming a member of parliament. Um, we'll, we'll come into that. We're going to actually talk about that part here, but eventually makes his way to Mississippi. And so this this is a guy who brings incredible perspective to the table, and I'm enjoying getting to know him better. I hope you are as well. So, okay, so where in your juncture did you get back to your birthplace? Well, I, my, my parents left Uganda in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, in fact, they did a, a short stint at, uh, in, in, in North Carolina. Um, and um, that was the first time I, I got to experience America. I didn't live here, but I, I visited my parents who were living in America in the early 90s. Um, and I, I went to university in the UK. So you could say that, you know, I'm, I'm British by birth, um, Uganda raised, but Mississippi by choice. Um, and um, I, um, as you said, I, I was a member of parliament in Britain for, for 12 years. And I went into politics in Britain for, for one overarching reason, and that is what we today call Brexit. <coughs> I, I believe that big supranational organizations like the UN, like the World Health Organization, like the European Union, are very destructive of democracy and prosperity. And I hated to see the country of my birth being absorbed into this almost Soviet-style bloc, the European Union. The European Union is supposed to create prosperity, but since the European Union has been created, Europe has crashed economically, it's failed demographically, and it is in serious, serious decline. I didn't want my country to be part of that. So I went into politics to try to get Britain out of the European Union. 
I um, co-founded Vote Leave, the official Brexit campaign. I, I had to put a bit of pressure on the then Prime Minister, David Cameron, to try to make sure we got a referendum. I was one of a number of people putting pressure on him. I, I actually switched parties to try to force him to give us a referendum. And I called a special election on myself in Britain, not something that had been done since, I think, 1926. We, we got that vote. We won that vote. And then Britain left the European Union. And, um, you know, I, I look back on it now. It, it took 12 years. I thought it might take longer. But the time that I was in the British Parliament, I came to the realization that I was in the wrong place. Um, not just on the wrong side of the Atlantic. I came to realize that I was in the wrong place by being in active politics. If you're in a legislature, you're trying to influence how people vote, and you're dealing with the consequences of how people vote. If you really want to safeguard freedom and liberty, you've got to change the way people think. If you change the way people think, that will influence everything. So I realized I wanted to move upstream from election politics to what you might call think tank politics, and um, that's what made me interested in, in coming over to the United States. You know, if freedom and liberty are the motor of human progress, the thing that's lifted our species, as Ronald Reagan once put it, from the swamp to the stars, then the battle for freedom and liberty in America is the defining battle of our age. Keeping America exceptional, defending American exceptionalism, stopping progressive politicians, reducing the United States to being a sort of North American version of France. This is absolutely key that we win this fight. Well, wait, so let's go back to your time in Parliament, because I, I remember as a young kid studying Parliament and then having access to watching some of the proceedings and thinking, gosh, it's so different. In fact, you would think that if you watch Congress today, it seems a little bit more like Parliament, <laughs> I mean, just just because people are willing to speak out and and scream or whatever they do. Uh, but Parliament's a unique it's, it's a very unique debating structure. And uh, how did you feel about your ability to sort of play ball within that that rural set that exists there? you got to have a thick skin, uh, particularly I discovered you have to have a thick skin when you're representing a party of one. At, at, at one time, I was the only elected representative of, of the party, the Brexit party, in the whole of the House of Commons. You, you've got to be prepared to, to have quite a thick skin. I was once visiting a friend of mine in Congress in D.C., and they explained to me that if they're making a speech and someone interrupts them, that is considered the height of rudeness, and it's an appalling thing if you're interrupted. Actually, if you're speaking in the British House of Commons, it's really awful if no one interrupts you, because if they're not interrupting you, if they're not trying to throw you off course, it means they're ignoring you. So actually, under the British system, you kind of you're in that bear pit. You've got to have a thick skin, but you want people to constantly try and interrupt you because that's what gives you the ability to kind of win the mood of the house. So it's 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 um, a very different environment. Um, you've got to be quick. You've got to be on your feet. You've got to think on your feet. And um, you literally have to get up and down to try to get the attention of the, the speaker. But it's it's you know, it's really important that, you know, the leader of the United Kingdom once a week has to stand in that room and be subject to those questions. Um, it's, 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 you know, it, it, it means that um, our leaders realize that, you know, they're only, they're only there temporarily. They, they've got the uh, freehold, the leasehold, not the freehold. I, I, I love the way you describe that. Um, you know, first of all, you gotta have thick skin. Boy, is that true? But it's so much more than that. You've gotta be dynamic. You've gotta know what the heck you're talking about. I mean, one of the things about the system is that 
if you you say quick on your feet, but quick on your feet doesn't always mean that you know what the hell you're talking about. Because if you go, if you get in that position and you don't know what you're talking about, or you can't really defend your point of view, you you will literally get eaten alive. And you've I, watched you've watched people literally be eaten alive right there in front of everybody. But but it does it does require you to really know what you're talking about. You've got to be able to defend your points of view. And I would say in that regard, comparing it back to to America, that we are not as we our thi- our skin is not as thick. That that's what I would say. We're too sensitive in America when it comes to having these debates, and so that that experience actually has really helped you in your role, hasn't it? I I, I think so. I mean, I I think not just being on the floor of the House of Commons. I think leading a campaign where you know the Bank of England, the BBC, the entire British establishment was in favour of people voting to stay in the European Union. And helping lead a campaign where you know ordinary folk were deciding on the future of the country, that 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 required an incredibly thick skin because we were demonised and vilified. Those of us who wanted Britain to leave the European Union were demonised and vilified relentlessly by a corrupt, a morally corrupt, and intellectually bankrupt establishment, and that 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 was really unpleasant. Actually, that was that was really tough. Um, you know, it was particularly tough on you know my family, family members, friends of of fellow fellow um, Leave campaigners. Um, you look at the way that Nigel Farage, who's essentially a decent guy, a decent patriotic Brit. You look at the way that he has been relentlessly vilified, um, and that is that is that is that is tough. That is that is not a good thing. Um, it's 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 not a good thing. It's interesting because you know you played at a really high level where the stakes were huge. Yeah. Uh, you know, still there's still discussion and debate today about Brexit and some some Brexit regret or whatever whatever the whatever the current thinking mm-hmm. is by certain people. But you think, but you know, it's interesting it, in a in a in a social media world, it's harder. To I mean, you got to have thicker skin because yeah. it's, it's it's harder to lead because it's harder to stay focused on the facts because the the amount of misinformation that that just gets spread and targeted and it's very difficult. You know, whether you're in parliament or or whether you're a local mayor, it's difficult. I, I think there's one really important lesson I got from my involvement in politics, and I think America really needs to rediscover this. It is perfectly possible for two good, decent people to look at the same set of facts and come to wildly different conclusions. The fact that somebody disagrees with you doesn't make them a morally bad person. The fact that someone might vote the other way, the fact that someone might want a different set of tax and spend priorities, the fact that someone may have a different focus and a different interpretation of America's role in the world, this doesn't mean they're bad people. I remember when um, I think it was George Bush Sr. left the White House and he left this wonderful handwritten note for Bill Clinton, his his successor, basically wishing him well and saying that although he didn't vote for him, he obviously didn't vote for him, he wanted him to succeed. That that civility has been lost in American politics. Yeah. You think that the American Republic is the greatest achievement in human history, and I do. I think the U.S. Republic is the greatest achievement, certainly since the Roman Republic. If you believe that we should preserve and safeguard the future of the American Republic, we we can't have a successful republic if you relentlessly demonize 
those that you disagree with. Sure, there are a lot of progressives who are off the wall. There are a lot of conservatives who are off the wall. But just because someone's progressive or, or conservative, don't automatically assume that makes them a bad person. They're not. They're decent. They're patriotic like you. Too often, the polarizing ends define the conversation, and that is really unfortunate these days. We'll talk more about that, actually, on the other side as we continue our conversation with Douglas Carswell, who's the president and CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. We'll see you after this. Welcome back to the Ricky Matthews Show. I have my new friend, Douglas Douglas Carswell, who's the president and CEO of the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. And we were chatting during the break about the fact that this time has gone by so quickly. And we'll we'll get together soon and uh, and continue the conversation. There's so much to talk about. And the serendipity that comes in it, there's a little structure in this conversation because obviously there are points in his life that I wanted to cover um, but still, you know, when you get into a conversation about Brexit or the way that Parliament works and how it differs from from America and the polarization of the the political you know scene in, in in America these days, these are things that everyone's thinking about. It. And it was uh, and and I look forward to having him back so we can just kind of go down those roads and have deeper conversations about all those things. But when we went to break, one thing, one point I wanted to make is that. You're, you're right. I mean, it's it's um, as a former publisher, I under, really appreciate this point that you made that two people who can have incredibly opposing views about the same data points. You know, the 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 the, the facts they agree on the fact, and but just have completely different points of view about that. I had the opportunity to spend some time in St. Paul, Minnesota, when I was training to be a publisher. And I spent a day, literally an entire day, a young man was killed in a drive-by shooting, spent the whole day with a journalist riding around in this neighborhood, a very poor neighborhood in St. Paul. And she was explaining to me, she said, are you surprised that we're spending so much time on this story? I said, well, I would want to learn more about what your thinking is about why we're spending so much time on the story. And she said, you know, I didn't want this young man's 15 minutes of fame being that he's got killed in a drive-by shooting. And what, I, what I've come to appreciate as a journalist, and this is what she said to me, obviously I appreciated it greatly as I went on with my career, that there is, he said, there aren't two sides to every story, she said. There is, there is many sides to the story as there are people engaged in that story. So you think about the political scene for America, for example, and the fact that the polarizing ends too often decide the agenda, uh, what we're going to talk about. Well, most of America, I don't care if you're on the right or left, most of America is somewhere in between. Most yeah. of America is moderate. And and most of America hates the fact that we can't we can't have uh, cordial debates, and they don't like the political scene, but they can't do anything about it. It's a it's a bad situation we find ourselves in, but that's true, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. A lot of my friends back on the other side of the Atlantic sometimes read the newspapers and watch TV, and they'll say oh my goodness, America, it seems to be divided, the country's falling apart, they hear these relentless stories about extreme polarization. I say, nonsense, absolute nonsense. 99% of the people that you'll meet in Mississippi get along together just fine. Um, people have been getting along, people from vastly different backgrounds have been getting along in Mississippi for generations. Most of America is full of incredibly civic-minded people. I, incidentally, I think the manners, particularly in the southern United States, are better than they are in London. I think actually the story of America is not of division. Yes, it's divided if you spend all your time watching CNN and Fox News. But hey, you know what? Stop. Don't watch those shows. They're designed to make you feel angry. 
most Americans, I think, are contented, good, decent people, neighborly people, and they get along with each other just fine. And I think that is something we should never lose sight of. I think you're so right about that. I have uh, I have friends on both sides of the political spectrum, and the conversations we often have about policy is so interesting that we agree on so much. We yeah. agree on so much, totally. but the uh, but the polarizing ends are deciding what the what we're going to ha- what the national conversation is going to be usually. And you know that's why I think you know to be quite honest with you, and I don't. This is not a political show. I don't. I don't talk about politics on this show. You know, rarely do I mention anything about it. But, but I think America wants to see a leader who can inspire, who can bring character back to the conversation, who can, who can bring us together, not just in terms of of leadership, but also in terms of policy to say, let's go, let's go solve some problems. We got a lot of problems to solve in this, in this country. And um, I'm praying a leader eventually emerges that can, that can do that. I know that might be hopeful thinking, but I know that I'm expressing what a lot of people think. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think America has produced some great, great leaders. You know, I think Ronald Reagan is probably one of the greatest. I mean, if I had to name three great American presidents, like, you know, George Washington, he, he beat the Brits, has to be pretty good. Um, I think um, Abraham Lincoln saved the republic. I think uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, he extended the freedoms that Americans take for granted around the world when he defeated Soviet communism during the Cold War. But, you know, America has also produced some pretty mediocre leaders. But don't don't be too rough on America. Um, America has produced some bad presidents, but think of the worst president that the United States has produced in the past 240 years of the Republic's existence. Nothing as bad as the worst leaders that have been produced by France, Germany, Japan, China, Russia. You know, America has its problems, but they're nothing compared to the problems produced by other systems. The American system works. Even when you get a dud and a useless president, the separation of powers, the federal structure, the founding fathers knew what they were doing. They saw the bad presidents coming and they put systems in place that cope with them. Frankly, you know, everyone was talking about um, January the 6th a while ago. You know, the system actually worked despite the um, madness of some of the partisans on both sides. The system actually works. America will endure. America has got. I can't agree more. Douglas Carswell, the president and CEO of Mississippi Center for Public Policy. When, we, when you and I come back again, I'm going to I want to talk to you about the perception that people have of Mississippi and how the perception they have and what is actually on the ground here are two different things but sometimes our leaders don't help us they don't help us they do things that substantiate a unfortunately an unfair perception of Mississippi but uh, be interesting to see your take on that because you're 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 someone who's been on the outside looking in and now you're here trying to make this a better state it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you my friend you, Wonderful. You, you, Thank you. Yeah, you bet. We'll have you back. We'll have you back soon, actually, for a matter of fact. It's been uh, Douglas Carswell. Have a great day, and we will see you tomorrow.